Ladies and gentlemen, from the depths of the adjunct laundry room, welcome to a special video edition of Hitting the Bricks with Kathleen that we're calling Off the Wall. While she's doing research on location in Virginia and D.C., we'll catch up with her. Of course, we're still on Buzzsprout and wherever you find your favorite podcast, but if you want to watch this and future episodes of Hitting the Bricks, stop by our YouTube channel at HTBKRB or do the searchy thing on the googly thing or the micro bing thing for hitting the bricks with Kathleen. But in the meantime, let's get off the wall. Kevin, how are you? Nice to meet I'm you. I'm good. I'm good, John. Nice to meet you. See, now this is interesting because Kevin has kind of a flowered motif going on there. It looks like it's a Hawaiian shirt day. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, Kathleen, you probably have flowers on yours, if I remember that uh, cover. Uh-oh. I can't hear you. Oh, okay, cough button. Uh-oh. <laughs> she got all settled, and now she's choking. Well, <laughs> let's let's watch. Let's see if my wife survives this interview. But at least it's not at me swallowing my earpiece. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> Did you tell Kevin about that? Yes. You thought you were swallowing your piece because that seems normal. That's, that, that's where you go when you wake up and you're choking in the middle of the night. Although I Absolutely. guess that was, a, that was a terrifying story, even to me. Yeah. I thought that was really weird. Did you hear that story, Kevin? Some About guy who, the ear? Yeah. It fell out while he was sleeping and he ended up like it was stuck in his throat. Yeah, that's what she was telling me she had oh. heard about this. And, of course, that was the first thing that comes to mind when the yes. person wakes up. Well, joking. now, yeah, now, whenever, I always assume it's my earbud. Okay, we're done <laughs> teasing you. Um, okay, so, I, of course, we're with uh, Kathleen, uh, Honey Bunny, and we're with Kevin Spire, who is uh, working with Kathleen, and you guys are in Richmond right now. Richmond, Virginia. Um, okay, so here's my first question then. My first question is, um, why? Why do you have to go? You, you, Kevin, you're in Iowa, right? That's my home, yep. Okay, so you're in Iowa. Kathleen's in Kansas City. Why do you have to physically go to Richmond, Virginia to do research? I, that's an excellent question. I came because I needed a break from you. Oh. <laughs> there's no real reason right there's no real reason <laughs> no real reason no there's no I reason just needed a break from you and kevin thought well let me entertain you while well, we're in everybody <laughs> else i asked i asked the next door neighbors why they thought and they were like yeah it's just getting a break from you yeah so no. so i kind of knew <laughs> not quite true mm -hmm. we are both working on brick wall uh projects and uh -huh. Uh, they both go to the 1700s. Are you working on the same project? No. Okay. I, I can talk about my project, which is the Nichols family, and Kevin can talk about his project, which is the Thompson family. Which and, which Nichols family? Is this uh, Chuck's Nichols? No. no this, this, is, is, this is a... It's been going on for about three years, actually. Mm -hmm. And... We are back to around 1698 in this oh, wow. one, totally colonial Virginia. Mm -hmm. And uh, mine is a, a issue is really the, the commonality of names. 
okay. because there's so many John Nichols in the world. I can't imagine. I can tell you about his project. Yeah, Kevin, what, and what takes you to Old Virginia? So for me, I'm working on a project to identify um, who are the parents of Samuel Thompson born about 1800 in Virginia. And this fellow is said to have been born in Virginia at a very young age, moved to Shelby County, Kentucky, then lived for a while in Putnam County, Indiana, and Lawrence County, Indiana, and then finally moved to Livingston County, Missouri, where he lived the rest of his life and passed away. Hmm. Um, so we're looking for some documentation and some records to help support the case of identifying who his parents are. And um, like there is with Kathleen's Nichols case, a lot of Nichols, there's also a lot of Samuel Thompson's out in the world. Oh, I imagine. Especially at that time. So it's been quite a challenge. Well, okay, so fine, you had to travel to Richmond, but there is a thing called the internet. And I'm wondering, and ancestry and heritage, and there's a whole bunch of other research tools out there that you can do from your computer. So um, again, other than getting away from your, your husband, Kathleen, <laughs> Why? Why Why did you have to travel to do this particular portion of research? Because it should be online, isn't it? Well, that it? is a wonderful myth that everything mm. is online. And there it's are billions of records online, but mm -hmm. there are billions of records that are not. Right. And we have been working quite a bit. Both of these projects are have been... Two, I think the Thompson is two years and the Nichols is three or four. Mm. So to get to where we are, and we need to get closer to the records that are, my, are, are not digitized. We need to get closer to the books that we can't get our hands on. And there's a big plus about doing a road trip. And that is you get to sit in that state's repository and you get to play with everything right there in front of you, all the resources. So that's not something we can do from from home. Mm -hmm. We can order some of these things, but you have to wait. Then you have to order something else. Mm -hmm. Whereas here we can get a lead and go right to the next the next. Uh, so source. There's, there's a ton of value in actually being on site. There is a ton when you Absolutely. get to that point. Yeah. And, and I think Kevin Kevin has a probably a different experience than I do with it because Kevin, you haven't done an extreme amount of on-site research. Is that correct? That's true. I have not done a lot of on-site research. Um, you know, living in Des Moines, Iowa, there are minimal number of repositories for Iowa records. <laughs> um, I would have to travel most likely to Kansas City or, or Chicago or something for a, a bigger repository. So this has been great. And, you know, another part that adding on to what Kathleen was talking about, another part is getting to interact and have the help of the library staff there with you oh. because they, you know, that's what they're there for is to help you and they know their resources and they can help you identify uh, maybe some things you hadn't thought of. Oh, wow. Interesting. 
So it really, there really are some distinct advantages to getting out from behind your desk, um, getting off off the uh, internet, and uh, once you've done the ground site, once, once you've done, done the groundwork, ground yes, yeah. Yeah. we have been able to go down to three different, well, four different repositories on this trip. Of course, this has been a seven day or eight day trip, right? But we have been able to go to, and Kevin, help me here, Library of Virginia. Yes. And the State Archives of Virginia. Is that what that other one is called? Well, there was also the Museum of Culture and History. That's the one. Yes. The Museum of Culture and History. um, And then yesterday, Kevin and I looked at each other and said, you know, let's go hang out in D.C. And so we took a train ride and we went to D.C. and we went to the uh, Library of Congress. Right. And we were in two different buildings. I was in more of a colonial part of the building with uh, uh, the Madison building. And Kevin, you were in. I was in the Jefferson building. Right, the Jefferson. And then Kevin also got to visit the DAR, the Daughters of American Revolution, yesterday. Do we know how many buildings are are composed the Library of Congress? There's at least three. Welcome to Chewy's History Break, brought to you by Hitting the Bricks with Kathleen. You know it ain't hooey if you hear it from Chewy. The story of the Library of Congress we know today begins in 1783 with a 32-year-old James Madison, a member of the Continental Congress, proposing a list of books that would be useful to legislators. Congress, always known for swift, decisive action, after signing the Treaty of Paris, the Articles of Confederation, the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, you know, basically everything that happens in the Second Act of Hamilton, and after the Whiskey Act, the Bill of Rights, and the first ten amendments to the Constitution, the Fugitive Slave Act, the Whiskey Rebellion, the End of the Whiskey Rebellion, the Relocation of the Capitol from New York to Washington, the election of John Adams as second president, the passing of the Alien and Sedition Acts, passage of the 11th Amendment, creation of the Department of the Navy, and the death of George Washington. After all of that, just 17 short years later in 1800, John Adams approved an act of Congress allocating $5,000 for books for the establishing of a library for Congress. After much deliberation, they decided to call it the Library of Congress. It was located in the north wing of the Capitol building and had 740 books. In 1802, the position of Librarian of Congress was created and President Thomas Jefferson named John James Beckley, who was the clerk of the House of Representatives, as the first librarian in what we refer to today as job creep. But in 1814, while the British were getting a little payback for that Fourth of July a few years previous, they burned the Capitol and the Library of Congress was lost. However, Thomas Jefferson, living in Monticello and living well beyond the means of even a wealthy plantation owner, sold 6,487 books for $23,900 from his personal library to refurbish the shelves of the Library of Congress and, not coincidentally, help him recover from his own debts. FYI, it didn't help. In subsequent years, the Librarian of Congress became a full-time position, and they continued to expand the influence, services, and acquisitions of the Library of Congress. All this to say, 114 years after James Madison had an idea, the largest library in the world opened its doors to the public in 1897. 
The new century saw exponential expansion of services and collections, and in 1939, the Annex Building was opened to the public, followed by the planning of a third building in 1958, the James Madison Memorial Building that opened in 1980. 1980 also saw the renaming of the first building of the Library of Congress to the Thomas Jefferson Building, and the Annex Building of 1939 renamed to the John Adams Building. So there are three buildings that comprise the Library of Congress, named for the second, third, and fourth presidents of the United States, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison. Today, the institution has over 39 million books along with 167 million other items and printed materials. In the 233 years since its establishment, there have been 14 librarians of Congress. Currently serving is Carla D. Hayden. She was sworn in in 2016 and is the first woman, as well as the first African-American, to serve as the Librarian of Congress. Well, it's about time. And that concludes Chewy's History Break. You know it ain't hooey if you hear it from Chewy. <laughs> So when we got kind of right, right before we got here, we thought mm -hmm. they were open the repositories we needed on Saturday, or at least the, the one that we were going to the library of Virginia. And it was right. not it only open one or two Saturdays a month. Mm -hmm. And this, this was not the Saturday. So literally where we wanted to go was closed Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Oh, wow. So, we still did some research on Saturday because, again, um, Kevin had had already pre-planned what is open on Saturday. And so that's when well we done. went to the other repository that I don't remember the name of. And on Sunday was a repository that shall not be named. <laughs> exactly. And then on Sunday was a play day, uh, but we are at an embassy suites. So there's always a happy hour in the evenings. And I joined Kevin there for happy hour All when right. I got from visiting with cousins, actually. Uh, cousins I have met through a family reunion. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Michael and Teresa, I forgot that you went to visit them. So, okay. So now uh, also traveling, when does your day end? I, I like when do the repositories, you know, come around and, and kick you out? When's the last call, I guess? is Most of them are around four. Mm -hmm. As far as the full records, it seemed that at least that's what I've been finding. Mm -hmm. Maybe once 4.30. I don't know about Library of Virginia. Do you know? Is it Was it five, Kevin? Yeah, they, well, they, they close the doors at five, but you're right. To pull records, it's usually four, maybe 4.30, but... They're shoving us out by five o'clock. Okay. Yeah, I was I was wondering. You know, I worked at the National Archives locally, um, but I didn't know if they had a drop dead date where they start rounding people up and saying, "Put your books back in." And are the the stuff you're getting are those checkoutable books, or are a lot of them just like no, they stay in a repository, and you have to wear white gloves to use them. No, you can check them out, especially if you live in Virginia and you have the Virginia card. Oh, Kevin okay. and I don't get to do that. So we had to do it there. But we can do interlibrary loan, which is one of Kevin's thing that you're going to do. Right, Kevin? You have, you need to do an interlibrary loan on a particular book, right? Yes. Yeah. There, there's a book I discovered that Des Moines does not have, but I can get it through interlibrary loan, which is is great. Um, so they'll send it to Des Moines for you. Yeah, from well, if it doesn't come from Virginia, it'll come by some other library that's in closer proximity to Des Moines. You know, okay. they'll check that out for me. 
Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so you'll go to a local repository as, so it's, am I understanding that right? No, it could be it, it could be anywhere. Actually, it's called WorldCat or Internet Library Loan. It could be any other library that was shipped their books or their microfilm, and we could just order it. It comes to the library, and then when it gets to the library, we oh, can you can use access it, it through any your local library. Right. Oh, I was thinking yeah. we go repository to repository, but that's even more convenient. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. But there are some things at those repositories that they don't lend out that you have to look at there. And those, of course, are like original manuscripts, mm -hmm. original documents, those types of things. Um, Any documents know, the, labeled top secret? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things I stumbled onto was um, when we were at the um, Museum of History and Culture, there was some documentation there for a personal brick wall that I've been researching on for myself. And I, I just happened to put um, my supposed ancestor's name in the catalog to see what would come up, curious mm -hmm. if it would. And, and lo and behold, there was something. It was a handwritten diary oh. <laughs> from a man by the name of Tobias Lear, who was um, personal secretary to George Washington at the Mount Vernon estate. Wow. And here was this little document you opened with these very delicate pages of his own handwriting in there talking about how he did not trust Benedict Arnold and he told Washington <laughs> he shouldn't trust him. Oh, that's amazing. That is very cool. <laughs> Did you get a chance to take a page, uh, every picture of every page on that one? Yes, Were I you did. Able to take yes, I did. Fantastic. And then it also had a little transcription that came with it, where someone quoted in a in a book article or something, and they had quoted quite a few of it because the, you know, the script and stuff is kind of tricky to read, so mm -hmm. a lot of it's transcribed. So what basically, John, we have spent seven days mm -hmm. taking pictures and doing lots of citations, as a good genealogist should always do. Yeah. We have been copying the links and the citations and making sure we know where we got our data mm -hmm. from. And when we go home, that's when we finish and do the hard work again, because this is what I call grab and go. Right. And, you know, we are just grabbing some things that may not even be directly, but it might be a lead. So we get to analyze it when we go back to the home offices. So just collect and, as much as you can and then sort it when you get it home. Yes, because we can't necessarily get this. Like I said, it's not readily available from Kansas City or Des Moines. Right. Did you meet the people like do you know the people uh, when you go to the repositories in the National Archives? Uh, Kathleen, I know you've dealt with a whole bunch of different ones, but uh, my I guess my question is, is if I'm going there, what are the people like? Because I would be intimidated going to a repository on my own um, because I would know nothing about really how to pull records. And are they going to treat me like, you know, a rube that just came off the street and doesn't know? Um, or, or how are you treated? Well, they can look at you and know that you're a rube that came just off the street. Not me personally. Me. <laughs> Not me. me. Yes. We were classified as oh, they, they could they could tell as you walked in. I'm sure that you were you were professional people. 
Actually, I had called um, like the the Library of Congress beforehand, and when mm-hmm. I got guy was he, he even looked at me and says you're supposed to come on saturday i was looking for you because that was the original plan but i did say right. saturday or monday and so he was all you know he knew who i was right. and he was so calling, available to help us they are so calling very- ahead would you suggest that for like anybody who's planning a trip not a trip necessarily 1800 miles away but a trip even to a local repository um you know, or even if they're headed to, let's say, the National Archives in Kansas City, and it's only a 10 minute or it's a 10 minute drive for me, but it might be a 30 minute drive. Should they call ahead? You should know what their holdings are. You should know mm-hmm. what their policies are. You should know. Uh, it's always nice if you call ahead to find out what they have and to check out their websites. And when you and go I, to these, I, yeah, hang on. Hold on. No, no, no. Hey, you hang on. Uh, <laughs> okay. okay. I'm, I'm hanging. Who's running this? You wait. You wait. I'm sorry. This is the only time this could possibly happen again. This is the only time it could possibly happen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna mute your mic. I'm reclaiming my time. Reclaiming my time. I'm reclaiming my time. You wait. Um, no, my question was: Is there a procedure? Do you have to? Did you? Did you have to set up a specific ID for each of the repositories? Um, and and fill out like. I'm assuming they're looking for ID or so do they have like a thing that you have to do when you go there every time and log in or something? So our experiences were different. So I'm gonna let Kevin talk about his and then I'll talk to you about mine. Okay. Yeah. So like when I went to the library of Congress for me to be able to go in, use the materials, be in the reading room, that sort of thing, I had to get a pass an ID and there was a little form to fill out with my, name, address, and phone number, basically. That was pretty much it. And then showing my state-issued ID, my driver's license. And then they gave me a little library card. Um, And that also had a library card number on it that you would use to request your materials with so that they could tag the material with you. Okay. And that doesn't cost anything, right? No, that was free. Okay. Yep. Thank you, Ted. Yeah, thank you, taxpayers, indeed. Okay, Kathleen. Well, mine is, was different because I already had all these IDs, but, but all of them had expired during the pandemic. So mm-hmm. all I normally did was just show them my original ID. Once mm-hmm. you get them, you've already done, done all the paperwork, and they just issue a more updated one they, once they verify your, your data. Okay. So uh, mine was probably two minutes long. At that, they didn't even take a new picture of me. So I have short hair and I look five years younger. Well, hey, there's a plus right there, right? Right. Um, that's all I think I have. Do you guys want to add anything? Kathleen, is there something you really want to mention? No, it's been a fun trip. I don't but- normally travel with a, a a person who also works for A3 Genealogy. Kevin's one of the few that has uh, I've traveled with, actually, I mean, at least for the whole period. Sometimes it might join me for a day or two, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So this has been a lot of fun. Plus, I had a chauffeur the entire time. So I, you know, I assume. <laughs> I was getting texts, and I understood that she was in transit. So I knew that she she put you into the driver's seat. Yeah. Oh, yes. These keys are yours. I don't want to see them again. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. If you knew, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that, right? 
<laughs> yeah, no, the trip the trip has been really good. And, you know, for myself, having not been to these repositories before now and having Kathleen to kind of guide me a little bit and kind of point me in some directions, mm-hmm. it's given me some confidence so that when I come when I do come back again, you know, I know right where to go and how to prepare myself. Excellent. And because I will be coming back at some point. Very cool. Very cool. Well, good. I uh, hopefully it was a uh, generally successful trip for your clients. Um, it seems like it was. So I do want you to know that all the clients are A3 genealogy clients, uh-huh. and Kevin is a paid intern. Okay. Uh, our internship program is a paid internship program because they are working with live clients. Mm-hmm. And one of the fun things was just talking about what what are the resources that he has to A3 genealogy wise here. Um, you know, the blog, the, the mm-hmm. podcast. And whatever other, and just me, all of our interns can can call me at any time, especially when they're working on a project, whether it's for A3 Genealogy or Lord. for their own business, because the idea through the through our program is that they're building their own clientele, finding their own niche, mm-hmm. and they can figure out where they want to fall in. And okay. I don't know, does Kevin mm-hmm. have any questions or answers or no. anything else? Chair, Kevin, no, do you- down to a minute. Kevin doesn't have any questions or answers. I'm good. I'm good at this point. We can do, we can schedule pickups if you'd like to. And maybe actually that's a good idea is that we should do a round when the information is collated. We probably should do an update on when the reports basically are constructed with the information that you collected. That might be an interesting conversation. It might not. I don't know. But what I need to do is Kevin, thanks very much. I appreciate you driving, being a chauffeur, but also stopping by here and letting me do this, uh, letting letting us get this recording done. It's been it's been a lot of fun and it's a pleasure meeting you. Uh, and thank you so much. And Kevin, um, do you have any last words? Yes, of course I do. Thanks, Kevin, for joining me on the road. And John, thanks for for organizing this. Okay. Well, you made it to the end of another episode. Thanks so much for staying. Thanks to Kevin Spire and Kathleen for taking a moment from the Embassy Suite Happy Hour to chat. Thanks to Chewy Chewbacca Brandt, our part-time translator and full-time reason for randomly yelling treat for his unwavering lack of interest in anything we do. The theme song for Hitting the Bricks was written and performed by Tony Fistknuckle and the Bow Weevils. Watch for their next show, Where a Tree Grows in Brooklyn. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and of course Buzzsprout and YouTube. We'd love to hear what you think about the podcast, so stop by our Facebook page at Hitting the Bricks and let us know.